Tonight we're continuing our study of godliness, and we uh, originally I told you this is going to be a five-week class, but we're going to add a couple of weeks to it to get into some of the other disciplines. We started last week looking at the disciplines themselves, uh, talking about Bible study, and tonight we're going to look at another discipline which is equally important with Bible study, and that is the study of prayer or the discipline of praying. Uh, these two go hand in hand, prayer and Bible study. One without the other is incomplete. We need them both. Prayer is one of those aspects of the Christian life that we instantly jump to a particular mindset when we hear someone talking about or teaching on prayer. We look at prayer, generally speaking, as a duty. And so when someone teaches on prayer, our inclination is to think, I don't pray enough. I need to plan more time for prayer. We hear the stories of the giants of the faith who prayed for hours and hours on end, maybe modern day prayers who spend great deal of time praying and we are suddenly thrust into an entire mindset of guilt because we don't do it enough. Anybody been there? Anybody feel that way when we talk about prayer? That is, tends to be how we think about praying. We get the guilty feeling like we get when someone teaches on studying the Bible and other things. And, and we, we kind of put prayer in the duty list of things we ought to be doing. And we have our little boxes next to it that we can check it off when we do it. And when we don't do it and can't check off the boxes, we feel guilty just as we do when we fail to do our Bible study. One of the reasons we do that, I think, is because we do put prayer in the obligation to-do list category. Now, the question is, is it a duty? Absolutely. It is a command. We are told specifically, repeatedly to pray. But when we stop at the place of duty and look at prayer as a to-do list item, we forget that ultimately it is not intended to be a ritual that we perform, but it is really about relationship. Prayer is primarily about relationship. When we pray, we are having a conversation with a person. We are making requests of a person. We are expressing ourselves to a person. We are praising a person. We are giving thanks to a person. That's what prayer is. It is a dialogue, a discussion with a person. Think about the traditional formulation of the Trinity. You are all well-versed. We've, we've taught you well here. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we describe the triune God that way, we would refer to the, the circle as the essence. They are one in essence. We don't serve three gods. We serve one God. But we distinguish in the one Godhead or the one God essence three, what do we call them? Persons. They're not three forces. They're not three powers. They are three persons. Now, Father, Son, 
guess I better make that singular or I'd get myself in all kinds of theological trouble. Father and Son, we can understand those two persons with respect to their personality because the very terms themselves lend themselves to relationship. There is a very good reason why the Scripture describes God the Father and God the Son as Father and Son. We learn something about their relationship in that metaphor. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. The third one, we might think, well, that sounds a little less personal, Holy Spirit. However, when we read and study about the Holy Spirit in the Scripture, in every case, the Spirit is referred to as a him or a he, never an it. And the Holy Spirit is given all of the attributes and characteristics of a person. He can be grieved. He has a will. He makes choices. So all three of the persons in the Trinity are persons. So when we pray to the Father or to the Son or to the Holy Spirit, we need to make sure we are not simply going through the motions of some routine. We are speaking to a person who is listening to what we say. If we can get out of the mindset of the to-do list and into the mindset of I'm having a conversation with a living, sentient being that may transform our prayer life. The question is, do we believe that? Do we really believe there is a being who is hearing us, who is listening to us, who wants to respond to us? Or do we look at God as the sum of His attributes? Again, when we think of God, we think of holy and the three omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He knows everything. He has all power. He's everywhere. We think of justice. We think of His immutability, which means you can't make him mute, right? You can't shut him up. No, he's unchanging. He doesn't transform into something else. He is always and every day the same. And we, we have all these attributes in our mind, and well, we should. But let me ask you this question. Is that how the Bible portrays God? Which passage, which book in the Bible would you go to to find a list of God's attributes? We're going to go to find God is holy, definition of holiness. God is omnipresent, definition of omnipresent. God is immutable, definition of immutability. Where are you going to go and find a systematic theological presentation of the attributes of God in the Scripture? You're not going to find it there because that's not how the Scripture presents God. All of those things are true and they are there. But that is not how the God that is, is revealed. He's revealed in story. He's revealed as the great storyteller, and he's revealed as a character in the story. He has fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walks with them. He has discussions with them. He shows up after the fall and says, where are you, Adam? Now, is that supposed to tell us that God's not omniscient after all? Of course not. But He is a part of the story. And all through the Scripture, we find God 
interacting with people, with human beings, via dialogue. He speaks to Cain, the sinful son of Adam and Eve who ended up killing his brother, after which God enters into dialogue with Cain. And God talks to Abraham and Moses and David and on down the line, all of the men of faith in the scripture talk to God as a person, not as a force, not as a sum of all of these attributes, but as a being who listens and hears. And the question is, do we believe that? When we pray, do we believe there is a person on the other end of the phone, as it were? Now, that's difficult because it's not the same as having a conversation with somebody else such as in this room. We don't hear back. We don't see the body language. We don't hear the emphasis of the voice and the tone. It is more difficult. And sometimes we have to pray by faith and not by sight. And yet, if we truly believe the Word of God, we will believe that there is a being who is listening and hearing and responding. This is the book that tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He was fully God and fully man, that He died on a cross, a true historical fact, that He, though innocent, took upon Him our sin, He died, He came back to life, and ascended into heaven. None of us have seen any of that. None of us were there. None of us were able to perceive with our eyes a dead man who came back to life. We didn't see him float into the clouds ascending to the right hand of the Father. We are taking the word of witnesses from the word of God that that is true. We are entrusting our hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sin on the pages of this book. It's the same book that tells us there is a God who hears our prayers. If we're going to take one of them and believe it and entrust our eternal life to it, then we should also take it at its word that God hears and responds to and answers our prayer, that He is really listening. There is a person to whom we are praying. And I stress this because I realize that our tendency is to think when we're praying, we're praying to the wall because God responds about the same way the wall does. Or if we're kneeling before a chair or something, a bench, there's just nothing coming back. And it's easy to slip into this mindset that there's nobody really listening. And yet the scripture couldn't be more clear. There is someone listening. There's a great quote by a man named Paul Miller who just wrote a book called A Praying Life. And he says this, Many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on praying, not on God. Let me read that again. Many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on praying, not on God. Think about what we do. We read books on prayer. We teach sermons on prayer. We go to seminar, seminars on prayer. We download messages from the internet on prayer. We get together and talk about how we should pray. We plan prayer meetings. We do everything except pray. Imagine if I found out that my wife wanted more time and conversation with me. 
And I think, oh, this is great. Let's do this. And we make plans. And I buy books. And we go to marriage conferences. And we spend a lot of time talking to people, asking their advice. How should we do this? What are some of the things you've learned in your marriage that help in your communication? And I spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on this, thinking, oh, this is going to be great one of these days. When we really talk, it's going to be great. You think that's going to satisfy her needs? You think that's going to bless her and create the communication that she's looking for? Of course not. What she would rather is I don't do any of those things. And we just sit down and talk. Imagine that. We want to have more communication, more conversation, and we do that by simply sitting down and talking? We focus so much on the ought to of prayer, on the ways of prayer, on the schedules of prayer, rather than just getting to it. I know you've been here. I've been here many, many times. You go to a prayer meeting. It's a two-hour prayer meeting. And you start at 7 a.m. And then you start sharing prayer requests. And pretty soon it's 8 o'clock. And we still haven't got around for everyone to share their prayer requests. And it's 8.30. And not only have we shared prayer requests, but those lead to other conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about your, your sister. Tell me more about her. What's going on? Well, that, of course, leads to another situation. Another, and pretty soon it's 8.45. Oh, look at the time. We better pray. A two-hour prayer meeting with 15 minutes, maybe, for prayer. That's not the way we should do a prayer meeting. If we're going to have a two-hour prayer meeting, let's pray for two hours. I like to encourage people to share their prayer requests as they are praying. God can hear it. The other people can hear it. Let's bring this before the Lord. But it's, the tendency is easy for us to focus so much on praying and forget praying is not the thing. The relationship with God is the thing. This is communication with God. This is a relationship with a person. Now think about this. Father-Son relationship. We are told in the Scripture, God the Father is the Father, God the Son is the Son, and we are adopted into the family as children. So we have a similar relationship to God, the Father, that Jesus has. We are called children. Now, I'm a son, and as I think of that relationship in the Bible, and I think of my relationship to my Father, I learn something about our relationship to God. I learn I am dependent upon God because as a boy, I was dependent upon my father. I learned that I need him, that I can ask him anything, that he's a good place to go to for wisdom and advice on things. I learned that as a son toward my father and many, many other things. But now I'm also a father and I'm learning the other side of this relationship. And I see my kids and how the highlight of their day is when I get home. They cannot wait. They come flooding me. Three little rugrats right around my legs. Daddy, daddy, daddy. And they're fighting with each other to see who, who gets to tell me first what they did today, what happened today to so-and-so. And if they've done anything like drawing a painting or a picture, they want to come show it to me. And, you know, it's just mass confusion of noise. And I have to tell them, stop one at a time. And if one of them starts, and then certainly another one jumps in there and interrupts. Well, okay, stop. I've got to sort all this out. And they just want to share with me all that's been going on throughout the day. And they want to spend time with me. On Monday, Krista was out uh, doing some planning and things, and I had the kids, and they were given an assignment to read for an hour. And I thought, here's what's going to happen. 
Sophie's going to go, you know, downstairs, and Abby's going to go into her room, and Gabe's going to go everywhere, because that's how he sits still and reads. And <laughs> what I discovered was, though they were required to be quiet and read, they all wanted to be in the room as close to me as they possibly could. In fact, if I were sitting in a chair big enough, they would have piled on. We weren't talking. We weren't engaged in conversation. They just wanted to be with Dad. They just wanted to spend time and be in the same room with Dad. And as I look at that, I think that's how it should be with us and the Father. We should not look at prayer as a chore or a duty, but as a time to spend time with our Father, to share with Him what's on our heart, to express our desires and our concerns and our joys. I think we see this in Jesus. I may be reading into it a little bit, but Jesus frequently spent the entire night in prayer. And several times it's mentioned when he's got a big decision to make, such as prior to choosing the 12 apostles, he spent the entire night in prayer. Let me ask you, how many hours does it take to choose 12 men? It doesn't take eight hours. What was he doing for all that time? I have a hunch. I think the son simply delights to be in the presence of the Father and to commune with the Father. I doubt that he spent eight hours in prayer requests. I think he was just focusing on every, putting everything else out of his mind and just communing with his Father because it's his Father. He wanted to be in the presence of his Father. We need to approach prayer more like that, recognizing that I can set aside time and just sit, and I don't have to do all the talking, I can reflect, I can simply ask the Lord to, to, to speak to my heart, to call to mind His Word. I can just sit in His presence and be with Him like my kids like to be with me. But I will only do that if I look at my relationship with God as just that, a relationship, and not prayer being a duty that I must perform. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is near us, that He hears us, that He delights to answer our prayers, that He wants to respond to us? Or would we get the right answers on a theology test and say, yes, absolutely, but in our lives, we prove we don't really believe that in our prayer experience. Now, one of the questions that we have to address briefly when we talk about prayer is the relationship between sovereignty and prayer. I don't know how many times I've been asked this question. If God is sovereign, what's really the point of prayer? Now we're taught well in this church, you know God's sovereign, you know my position on this. I've said it to you over and over again. I believe that every single thing that happens, including the very hairs on my head or a bird that falls dead, everything is decreed by God. There is nothing that happens that is not directly his controlled outcome. He is sovereign over all things. His providence extends to every square inch of the universe. So if that's true, if he's already determined the end from the beginning, which he has, the scripture makes that plain, why pray? Why ask a sovereign God who's already decided what's going to happen, why ask him anything? To ask that question is to go somewhere the Bible doesn't go and doesn't tell us to go to. 
Let me put it this way. If we carry that out to its logical conclusion, we really are acting more like fatalists than we are Christians. The Bible does not teach fatalism. The Bible does not present God's sovereignty as simply this blind force that is going to happen. It's already been determined. There's nothing you can do about it, so don't worry about anything. You can't make any choices. You just do what you have been predetermined to do. The Bible never presents things that way. It's all presented in the context and in the concept of relationship. God is sovereign, but we are told to pray. And we are not told that prayer merely conforms our will to God's. That is the standard answer from the Reformed camp. The Reformed camp are those that have a high view of God's sovereignty. And whenever you ask this question of someone in that camp, you're likely going to get the response, well, prayer doesn't change stuff. It certainly doesn't pray, uh, change God. It doesn't really change things, but it changes you. It changes your will. As you pray and you see God work, your will is more conformed to God's will. My first question to that is, where does the Bible actually say that? That's a good logical deduction as we try to reckon God's sovereignty and prayer, but does the Bible actually teach that? Now, some of you know that, um, that uh, I can be a bit of a gadfly. I was, uh, I was in a seminary class a few years ago, and the professor was teaching on prayer, and uh, he was teaching the traditional uh, view of these things. God is sovereign. You can't change God. You're not going to change God. Don't try to change God. Who would want to change God? That's all true. But uh, prayer is not intended to change anything anyway. It's to change you and conform your will uh, to his. And he went on, and he was really, really stressing this. And I didn't go into every class thinking, how can I hijack this class? But on this particular occasion... Because he was emphasizing it so strongly, I actually began to get a little disturbed in my, in my spirit that he's really ripping out from every student there any true purpose in prayer. So I finally raised my hand. I said, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is prayer doesn't change God, it doesn't change things, but prayer changes me and conforms my will to God's. He said, exactly right, you got it. I said, let me ask you this question. Has God already predetermined whether or not my will is going to be changed and conformed to his? Dead silence. This is from a man who never was without an answer. He said, well, yes. I said, so really, if God's already predetermined to change my will, then whether I pray or not, I'm going to be changed. So my prayer really doesn't even do that. Long, uncomfortable, stick a knife through it, silence. He said, well, what do you think prayer is? <laughs> I said, let me tell you, I'm glad you asked. We must be careful. I'm convinced as much as ever the Bible teaches God's absolute sovereignty, but it also says, pray. A man Elijah, a man the same as you and me, prayed that it would stop raining, and it stopped raining for years. And the man prayed, and it started raining again. Now, had God determined that? Yes, but that's sort of beside the point. The Scripture never tells us to try to reconcile those two things, and the Scripture itself doesn't try to reconcile those two things. It's irreconcilable for finite minds 
to wrestle with and bring together things that are infinite. I'm telling you, it can't be done. God could never present to us how His sovereign plan and providence and our prayers come together. It's just incap- we are incapable of understanding that. And more importantly, we're not told to. We're not even hinted at to do such a thing. What we are told to do is pray. You have not because you ask not. Go to Him and plead with Him and ask. And Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give it to you. Makes us uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus said. Now there are qualifications to be made, and and I don't have time tonight to get into all those, but I don't want us to qualify things to death. I don't want us to believe more than the Bible teaches about sovereignty. And if there's one example in the Scripture that convinces me that we must not become fatalists in our prayers... It's the Lord Jesus himself. If there's ever been a man who knew the predetermined will of God, it is the Son of God. And the night that he was going to be betrayed, he is on his knees saying to the Father, if there is another way, let it be done. Now what we might be inclined to say to him is, Jesus, how can you ask such a thing? You know this has been predetermined. You know the entire balance of human forgiveness hangs right here on your crucifixion? How could you ask such a thing? He asked. Now, he gave us the right example also, but nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. But he asked. He asked his father because he knew what was coming we need to follow that pattern and, and not slip into the fatalistic mindset where we think that because God is sovereign, somehow our prayers don't actually do anything. The scripture would say otherwise on virtually every page. Men prayed, God answered their prayer. How that fits with his sovereign decree, I don't know. But the scripture teaches both with equal emphasis. And let us not fall off of either side of that cliff. So what should we pray? If we're going to pray with passion, if we're going to commune with our Father, what kinds of things should we be talking to Him about? Or is it a free-for-all? Just pray for whatever you want to. Well, the Scripture gives us some very specific instructions here. Think about this with me. We ask for and give thanks for the things that we most value. I think that is a truism. I think that is true. I think we're going to ask of God and give thanks to Him for those things that are most important to us. If that's true, and I could have a printout of your prayers over the last year, what would I find is most important to you? Next question is, what's most important to God? What are His priorities? And do we need to make some adjustments in what we pray about to conform more to what is important to God? In balancing our prayers toward temporal matters like sickness, like jobs, fun. It's amazing to me. I didn't teach my kids to pray for fun. But they just do. When I ask them to pray in the morning, oh Lord, help us to have fun today. 
Where did they get that? I didn't teach them that. I will say, Lord, help us to enjoy the day. Maybe they're equating the two. But we pray for fun. We pray for money and about money and money situations. Details concerning things that are coming up. Please help all these things work out so that everything goes smoothly for what I have planned. Not that those things are important. Not that those things are, are unworthy of our prayers. They are. But are those the biblical priorities? Are those the things that we find the Scripture exhorting and exemplifying in prayer? I think the answer is no. Let's look for a few moments at Luke chapter 11, the Lord's Prayer as we call it. I love this passage. We start by reading, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, Seems likely that Jesus had places away from the crowds that he went to pray, certain times that he prayed. Paul talks about his times of prayer. I think it's important that we set aside time for prayer. Seems like Jesus did that. After he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. One thing we learn about that, one thing we learn from that about prayer is prayer is something that can be learned. It's something that can be taught, and it's something that can be learned. It's not just a free-for-all. There is a proper way to pray. So Jesus answers their request. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Address him as Father. Do you address God as Father, when you pray, do you recognize that kind of intimate relationship that you have with Him? How about this? When you know you are guilty of sin and you come to Him in repentance, do you call Him Father or do you say, God, I know I've sinned against Your holiness? Or do you come to Him and say, Father, please forgive me? He says, call him Father, but then the first request is, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Think about the interesting juxtaposition there. Call him Father, a very intimate term, of a relationship of closeness, and the first request is, help me to make your name holy. To regard your person, your character, your being as different than anybody else. That's what holy means, to be set apart, to be different. Help me to regard you not casually, not with a cavalier attitude, not as though we're on the same level. Help me to regard you in your proper place, and yet you call out to him as Father. It, they're both true. He is the omniscient, holy, just, different God, and yet... We can sit in his lap and say, Dad, here's my request of you. Hallowed be thy name. You know, sometimes I get very um, concerned when I hear some of the uh, people, mostly are younger, and how they address God. God, uh, yeah, yeah, God, uh, yeah, almost like, you know, I'm waiting to hear dude and hey buddy and, and that kind of stuff. And when I was uh, in high school, the big thing was to call Jesus Christ, you know, the oh, hey, JC, and there were rap songs written hey, about JC. I don't think that would fit with Jesus' suggestion here about how we pray. We are not to bring God down to our level. He's not on our level. 
He is the Holy One, and we are to regard His name and His character as holy. But that does not preclude us from having an intimacy with Him and call Him Father. Father, help me to make Your name unique. Second request, Your kingdom come. Bring the kingdom of God here on earth. Establish the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, this was pre-cross and resurrection, but we know what happened at the cross and resurrection. We know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where He reigns now in all authority, and we can take this prayer to its, its end conclusion. Lord, make the Lord Jesus Christ sovereign and recognized as sovereign over the earth. Bring men and women, bring my neighbors and my family to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's part of the request here. Number three, give us our daily bread. Temporal needs are fine. We are to call upon Him for them. And I put in this category not only our needs, but even our desires, our wants. The things that I would like to receive from the Father. Give us our sustenance. Give us our, the, the money to pay the mortgage. This is where the prayers for job situations and so forth comes in. Take care of me. You're my Father. Give me what I need to live. Provide these things. And forgive us our sins, for we all ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So one of our requests, Jesus said, is we should ask the Lord to forgive us. Now we think, wait a minute. I thought the gospel said all of my sins, past, present, future, all of them, were put on Christ and atoned for and they're forgiven. Is God keeping track? I thought his, his, he says that he takes our sins and puts them as far as the east is from the west. I thought it was all on this, on this list that was na- nailed to the cross and it's done. Why would Jesus say, I need to keep coming in and confessing my sins and asking his forgiveness if they were all taken care of on the cross? Well, in the final analysis, all of our sins have been forgiven. But in order to maintain the proper relationship we need to constantly remind ourselves that we are sinners, appeal back to the gospel when we do sin, and come to the Lord and say, Father, I've sinned again. Would you please forgive me? Not that He won't forgive you if you happen to miss one somewhere along the line, but the point is it restores relationship. It's like my children. I love my kids, and there's nothing they can do that's going to end my love for them. But when they disobey, now there's strain here. And my kids cannot defy me and then come up and give me a big hug and say, Hey, Daddy, can we go get some ice cream? doesn't work that way. They know they need to make things right with me first. So they come and say, Daddy, will you please forgive me? In fact, when we discipline our children, we go and we perform the discipline and then we leave and require them to come to us to make things right to come to us and say, here's what I did, will you please forgive me? But there's another element here. Here's the request Jesus tells us to pray. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So if we are going to come to the Lord and ask His forgiveness, and we're holding on to grudges, we are refusing to forgive someone else who sinned against us, that's going to present problems. It takes a pretty hard heart to hold against a fellow sinner their sin against us and go to the Father who is perfect and say, but I expect you to forgive me of my sins. That's 
We have to be pretty callous to do that. I'm not going to forgive him for those nasty things he said. But Lord, I did say some pretty awful things toward you, and I need to ask your forgiveness. But by coming to him and regularly confessing our sin, it also, on the horizontal plane, calls us back to the gospel for our own sins and moves us to extend grace and mercy to others. And lead us not into temptation. That word temptation is also a word that can mean trial or testing. Lord, don't lead me into the testing. Don't, don't put me to the evil one. Don't put me in situations where, where I'm going to be tested. And if you do, give me the strength to endure it. Give me perseverance and righteousness so that I please you in that time of trial and temptation. And then he adds this. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children have been, are in bed. I'm in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now we read that at first glance and we think, all right, here's the, here's the, the moral of the story. Just keep knocking and knocking and knocking until you finally wear God out. And he gets so frustrated with you, he says, quit bothering me, I'll give you what you want. Leave me alone. That's not the point. In fact, it's just the opposite. Here he's describing a friend, says he's a friend, but when his friend is in need and says, hey, could I get some bread? There's all kinds of reasons he comes up with not to give the man what he wants. The contrast is our Heavenly Father who delights to bless his children, who wants to pour out his grace and favor upon us. We don't have to knock until we finally wear him out and he doesn't want to be bothered anymore. He is a father who has great care and concern for us. As we read on, we will see that comparison. So I say to you, this is Jesus. This is not Doug. This is not a good, wise man. This is the son of the living God who says, I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. It's in the same book that says, if you believe the gospel, you will be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven. Why do we believe that? and not take Jesus at his word here. Have we so qualified this, and there are proper qualifications, but have we so qualified this that we don't really ask, seek, and knock, and therefore miss out on many blessings? We have not because we ask not. Now Jesus does the business of qualifying. He says, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? What's the point? When you ask your heavenly Father for something, He will not give you something in return that is going to harm you. But it doesn't say He's going to give you what you ask. He doesn't say if, you ask, if your son asks you for a fish, He'll give you a fish. 
He just says he's not going to give you something that will harm you. He won't give you a scorpion or a rock. We are to ask and seek and knock, not because God is like the giant vending machine that just puts out exactly what we uh, you know, push the button for and out it comes, but He will always, always, always give us something that is good, that is right for us and for His purposes. If you then, being evil, thank you, Jesus, if you fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, ask my kids, they get good gifts. They like the gifts I give them. They know I love them. They know I bestow blessing. They know I love to see their big faces smile when I present them with something. And I'm evil. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, parenthesis, who is not evil, give you the Holy Spirit to the one who asks? When we ask for things that are merely for our own pleasure, for pleasure's sake, that are ultimately self-centered in orientation, God's not going to give us those things. I don't give that to my kids. A wise father doesn't just give his kids everything that, that he's asked. But when we ask with pure motives, we can be assured God will respond and answer our prayers every single time. And the most important gift He will give us is His Spirit. Why? Because at the top of God's priority, for, priority list for us is not a shiny new Mercedes. It's not an iPhone yet. <laughs> Someday it might be. At the top of His list for us is our godliness, our righteousness. Jesus said it, seek first His kingdom and its righteousness. That's why Jesus guarantees that when we ask, the Lord will give us the Holy Spirit. The Father will give us His Spirit to lead us to do things that are pleasing to Him. That's what He cares about most. Now, with that thought in mind, look with me at Colossians chapter 1. If we want to learn what to pray for and how to pray, we should look to the Scripture. Jesus just taught us how to pray. Paul prays repeatedly in his letters, and he prays for the very kinds of things Jesus said to pray for. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. Here's what Paul and his buddies pray for the church. That you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Stop right there. We ask and we ask and we ask that you be full of the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk worthy, so that you will please Him in all respects, so that you will be obedient and faithful and devoted with the right attitudes 
and piety. That's what Paul prays for the Colossians. He goes on, To please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, to, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. Did you notice anything missing from that list? Health issues? Job status? Again, I'm not saying it's wrong. It is right to bring those things to the Father. But if we have 90% of our time praying for those things and 10% of our time praying for these kinds of things, we are in imbalance biblically. Let me, ask, let, me, let me put it this way. If we were to read that transcript of your prayers for your spouse, for your kids, for your pastor and elders, for your small group members, for the people in this church, for your family, extended family, would we find that you have been pleading with the Lord, asking and seeking and knocking the Lord to make them worthy of Christ, to fill them with the real knowledge of His will, to strengthen them, would give them steadfastness and perseverance? Father, provoke thanksgiving in them, remind them of the gospel so that they give you the gratitude that you deserve? Or would we find primarily things like logistical details of life, well, uh, sickness, and so on? I encourage you to do a study of the New Testament prayers. Start with Paul. Start with the beginning of his epistles and note the things he prays for. And then make it your habit to spend the majority of your time for a while praying those kinds of things for everyone for whom you pray. And see if things don't change where you see the Lord at work. All right, let me give you a few points of application as we wrap this up. Number one, you need to plan to pray. Like Bible study, we won't get around to it if we don't plan for it. We have all the good intentions in the world, but we need to make time and set aside time if we're actually going to do any praying. Be reasonable, however. You've got a bunch of small kids around, and you set up that perfect hour of quietness. Guess what? It's not going to happen that way. It's okay. Don't launch into the guilt scenario. Pray as you can. Set aside some time later on. And if your work schedule changes constantly, you're, you're working four or five uh, days of 12 hours and, and it changes from nights to mid-shift to whatever, that's okay. Work around that, but plan. Set aside time to pray or you won't get to it. Number two, pray all day. We don't ever have to stop praying. In fact, we are told specifically and explicitly not to stop praying. Peter, or Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, here's, your, here's a test. How do you respond to that? Did you just go, oh, yeah, I hate that verse. I don't ever do that. How am I supposed to pray without ceasing? I'm such a horrible, I can't believe I call myself a Christian. I don't ever. If you do, you have forgotten the gospel. 
If that's where you go, and now as soon as I say, pray without ceasing, you are heaping coals of condemnation on yourself, you have forgotten the gospel. You cannot get this right to such a degree that God will say, aha, I now accept you. Your relationship to God is not eternally bound up on you praying without ceasing. It's not a to-do list item. It is not earning His favor. You're in a relationship with the living God. So don't react with condemnation. React with wonder at the fact that you can commune with the living God all day long. When you're at work, when you're at the gym, when you're on the golf course, when you're messing with those messy toddlers, when you're getting food together, whatever it is you are doing, you are capable of interacting with the living God. So ask Him, make this one of your requests tomorrow. Father, make me conscious of your continual presence. When I'm in the meetings, when I'm teaching the kids, when I'm driving down the road, when that guy cuts me off, remind me of your perpetual presence. And then talk to him. Ask him. Praise him. Doesn't, prayers don't have to begin with, Oh, most holy, sovereign Father in heaven who reigns over all the earth. They don't have to begin that way. They don't have to end with, in Jesus' name, amen. It could be a day-long communion with your heavenly Father. Number three, at times at least, pray out loud. And I don't mean in group setting. I mean when you're alone. I think it does two things. One, it helps you from wandering off. You've all done this. You start to pray, Father, heaven, Hallowed be your name. What time am I supposed to meet him today? What, what restaurant? Oh, no, 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 that's horrible. Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Um, Lord, hallowed be thy name. Make your name holy to me. Oh, I, I should have made that point the other night on Wednesday night when I was teaching. I had the perfect point to make, and I forgot. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm talking to you. It's not about what I did last Wednesday night. Pray out loud. At least for me. I don't wander off. When I'm speaking, it's as if I really think there's somebody listening. And that's the second benefit, I think, to praying out loud is either you're going to feel really silly or you're going to think, I am going to pray out loud, I am going to speak out loud because, doggone it, there is somebody hearing me. And I want to be heard. So I'm going to pray. Just a suggestion, but try it if you haven't done that by yourself once in a while. Pray out loud. Number four, pray through Bible passages. Take the passages like we looked at. Take Luke and pray through the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Lord, make your name holy to me. Your kingdom come. Lord, use me, use our church, use others to cause the people who are next door, to cause my, my cousin, my sister, whoever, to, to bow the knee to Christ and, and recite those. But don't just go down the line as a, as a rote prayer, but actually Formulate your own words and thoughts and make, form your requests from those statements. Take the, the passage in, in Colossians 1 and pray those. Lord, take and, and fill in the specific name, this person, and fill him with your knowledge today. 
give him steadfastness. I know he's been struggling. He's been really wandering and, and, and the, the evil one is condemning him and he feels worthless and, and he just doesn't have the, the, uh, the endurance right now to persevere in his faith. Father, grant him that endurance. Do something today to get his attention to remind him of the gospel, to get his eyes off of himself and onto the cross and give him the ability today to say no to Satan, to resist his evil conviction and say, I'm forgiven in Christ alone and I will serve him today. You can do that. You can pray that way. It comes right out of Colossians 1. And attach somebody's name to it and there you go. Number five, pray for the things the Bible tells us to pray for. Here's a challenge for you. Locate for me either a precept that is a command or an example of somebody praying for sickness in the Bible. And if you find it, compare that with all of the other things the Bible says to pray for. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying for sickness. I pray for people who are sick frequently. But even when I'm praying for those who are sick, my Zeal is not that they are physically cured as much as it is that the Lord would use this to sanctify them, that He would strengthen their faith, that He would use this for whatever purpose He's brought it in, sovereignly brought this into His or her life to accomplish, and that they would remain steadfast. Yes, I want, I, my desire is the person is healed, but there are more important things than physical healing. Pray for what the Bible tells us to pray for. Number six, do what you have to do to keep track of these things. Make lists, prayer lists. There are different ways that people do prayer lists. Some people use the ACTS acronym as sort of a guide. Maybe you're familiar with that. The A is for adoration. You begin by adoring God and praising Him for His, His many wonderful attributes. You, the C is for confession, confessing your sin to this God that you're praying to. Thanksgiving, finding and exploring ways to offer gratitude and reasons to offer gratitude to God. And the S is supplication. That's where you get to the requests and the needs. That can be very helpful. It can also be very dangerous because we are creatures of the checklist mentality. And we walk through and check, 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 check. All right, I'm done for the day. Great, let's get on with life. So any of these things, prayer lists, whatever, can be very helpful, but they can also be uh, detrimental if we get stuck in a routine. So vary it up, I would encourage you, and, and do things differently. Number seven, pray. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Don't just study about it. Pray. And as the Puritans said, pray till you pray. Sometimes it takes a while to get through all the beginning stuff of feeling goofy and wandering off and whatever, but pray and pray and pray until you're actually communing and conversing with the living God. But pray. Let me wrap up with a few stanzas from my mom's favorite hymn. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne Make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. 
Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, the joy I feel, the bliss I share of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. With such I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, thy wings shall my petition bear to him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless. And since he bids me seek his face, believe his word and trust his grace, I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. May it be that we will find our times alone with God in communion with Him the sweetest part of our day.